Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Rue Morgue Magazine. Subscribe to Rue Morgue for award-winning insight into the world and culture of horror, from books, movies, and comics to music, collectibles, and classics. Featuring the latest film, book, comic book, music, game, toy releases, and more delivered to your door. Guillermo del Toro called it the best damn magazine in the genre. Subscribe to Rue Morgue, the horror magazine of the 21st century, by visiting www.rue-morgue.com. Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Carlo Mirabella Davis is a writer and director who just made his feature debut with Swallow. Swallow tells the harrowing tale of a newlywed housewife whose oppressive existence forces her to succumb to a compulsive urge to eat non-food items like dirt, thumbtacks, marbles, and more. The condition is real, and it's called pica, and while the movie paints a very compassionate portrait of a pica sufferer, it does not shy away from the horror of the disease, which is what makes Swallow so powerful. Joe Bob Briggs left a glowing review of Swallow, which I highly recommend, if only for the drive-in totals. In talking to Carlo, I was very struck by the level of attention to detail that he approaches his films with. His decisions as a director are all extremely meaningful and very comprehensive. And in this interview, we learn more about his process. We also hear how he got his first movie off of the ground as a first-time director and learn about the real life inspirations of Swallow. Now, for your listening pleasure, here is Carlo Mirabella Davis. <laughs> Huge congratulations on Swallow. It was oh. fantastic and really unexpected. When I saw the trailer, I thought it was going to be a little more of a kind of body horror, but it went very, very deep into like a, a psychological drama and then... And I can cut this out if it's a spoiler, but there was a kind of healing of trauma catharsis at the end that I, I just did not see coming. So, uh, you know, first of all, bravo. It was, it was really, really fantastic. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That really means a lot to me. Yeah, I'm fascinated by uh, the the power uh, of horror movies to create a kind of visceral, uh, emotional journey. Uh, I think uh, a lot of times horror movies are seen as being um, a distressing experience, and they often are, but I think mm -hmm. they can also be very healing. Yeah. Uh, seeing your fears manifested on the screen makes them more manageable. I think you can walk away feeling like you can uh, take control of your life and sort of uh, conquer your demons a little more after a great horror movie. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I, I struggled to um, it's I, I struggled to kind of categorize this movie. Not that every movie you know belongs in a box, but I've heard you in other interviews describe it as part horror, but also part domestic drama. And I think there was another term that you. But how how do you typically? describe the movie in terms of uh, how do you categorize it well i i like to see this movie as like the tiramisu of, of genres you know <laughs> because you're absolutely right that it it has uh, a body horror element it has psychological thriller elements it also has uh, a domestic drama aspects to it as well as some dark comedy yeah uh, and for me, <clears throat> I'm fascinated by the friction uh, that multiple genres have with each other. Hmm. Um, for example, you know, uh, the, the, the visceral nature of the horror, the body horror, uh, you know, I think pulls the audience in and creates a, a, an extremity of experience that hopefully will um, increase identification that people have where they say, oh, you know, I've, I've experienced pain like this and, you know, I can relate to this experience. Um and uh, the drama, I think, um, allows uh, the audience to connect to um, psychological intricacy of the character and to have a emotional catharsis themselves. Mm-hmm. And the underpinnings of dark humor, I think, help the medicine go down. Right. And dark humor can often make the experience feel more human. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something about a little bit of humor that makes the experience more relatable. And it was really important to me that Swallow is a film that, yes, it's it's unnerving and it's disturbing, but also I wanted it to be heartfelt and 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 uh, um, and and personal and a film that made people feel seen and increased empathy. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a real universality to it because, I mean, again, when I saw the trailer and then I read up a little bit on Pika, I didn't dare Google image search Pika, though, by the way. But um, yeah, originally thought it was um, I I didn't expect it to have such a universality to it. You know, I was able to see that this people could look at this through the lenses of their own compulsions or their own, in some cases, trauma and or mental illnesses. I mean, it was not so sensationalized as a freakish condition, but it was more something that was made very relatable, which I think was a feat because it's, um, you know, we've seen those My Strange Addiction shows and people who eat bizarre things and uh, I've never related to them and I feel like most people probably haven't, but there was something very relatable about this character and what she was going through and there was just, there was such a nuance to it that it was all it was very believable and very you know universal i mean i'm sure that that was on that, that was on purpose but how meticulously did you have to craft that so that it was not so overtly freakish that people would check out and not associate with her right well i'm so pleased to hear you say that i mean one of the big goals of the of the film was that uh was making the story feel universal so that someone as you say might uh, watch the movie and say, well, I wouldn't uh, consume a dangerous object, but I understand the pain that she's feeling in that moment. I I, I understand, uh, you know, that feeling of uh, being out of control and uh, being in a situation where people are, are are taking away your agency, and I can right. relate to that. Um, and so that that crafting that empathy. Uh, was something that I tried to weave into every aspect of the writing uh, mm-hmm. and every scene, trying to 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 put the audience uh, in Hunter's shoes. And so they experience what happens to her through 
her eyes. Um, uh, one of the other ways that you do that is by um, having an amazing lead actor. And we were so fortunate to have the incredible Haley Bennett um, decide to bring Hunter to life. I mean, I just think she delivers a tour de force performance here. Um, and Haley is so good at ushering the audience into Hunter's uh, universe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the moments that Hunter has with the objects are without dialogue. So you need an a, a, a incredible performer like Haley, um, who has this uh, intense control over the micro calibration of her face. Haley's so good at telling uh, the story, uh, expressing the narrative through uh, the emotions that dance in her eyes or through her her facial expressions. Um, and so I think that really helped increase empathy. That combined with our cinematographer, uh, Kate Arzmendi's um, unbelievable camera direction, uh, mm. because Kate has a, a, you know, a, a renaissance painter um, ability to craft close-ups that just draw you into the mind of the character. Yeah. So I, though, uh, you know, those elements um, uh, helped us, uh, hopefully, um, make a film that, that people can connect with. Yeah. It was really, really beautifully shot too. Was the aspect ratio a little different or was I just seeing things? It felt no, like it was uh, yeah, super we, wide. Right. We have, a uh, uh, you know, a very specific, uh, uh, aspect ratio and camera direction that, uh, Kate and I spent a lot of time crafting, you know, I mean, Kate is just a, uh, a visual genius and, uh, you know, her ability to elevate the subtext through mm -hmm. shot composition, camera angle, lens choice, lighting is is just second to none. And Kate and I spend a lot of time developing a rigid vernacular for the mm -hmm. camera direction, you know, a strict set of rules that we would then break at key emotional junctures in Hunter's journey. Hmm. So, for example, in the beginning of the movie, you'll see a lot of lockdown shots that Kate will compose, master shots where Hunter's lost in the frame or where she's, you know, kind of dominated by the space. And then uh, suddenly Kate will use a close-up uh, with shallow depth of field uh, to pull you into Hunter's cosmology or suddenly mm -hmm. she'll use handheld. And it's startling because Kate hasn't used it up until that point. So that balance of restraint and then kind of like using uh, a technique that has hasn't been applied yet is something mm -hmm. you really tried to uh, to do to reflect Hunter's uh, psychological journey. Wow. So in terms of mapping out the overall psychological journey of the character and translating that to the cinematography, that's unbelievably thorough. That's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's the way I love to work, you know, and yeah. I try to do that with every aspect of filmmake of the uh, of storytelling. I believe that every single film department is an opportunity for expressing the narrative um, right down to the what kind of coffee cup a character is holding. Uh, I was very fortunate to work with the amazing Aaron McGill, our production designer, uh, who's just incredible, uh, incredibly imaginative artist. And she um, had this amazing idea that every uh, object in the space of the house is an opportunity for expressing Hunter's uh, inner psyche because Hunter is actively decorating the home mm -hmm. the way she believes 
the wealthy, controlling, patriarchal family wants it to be. But on occasion, her true self will emerge, like the moment she puts the red gels over the baby's room right. window, and we see this sort of you know burst of power and uh, uh, defiance there. So. Um, uh, that was really interesting. And I love Hitchcock and, you know, uh, Argento and, and mm. getting to the intricacies of of um, of color, uh, color dialogue. So that was really intriguing to me. Nice to go back to Haley. I mean, that performance was extraordinary and it was very nuanced. I feel like if it went in either direction, you know, by a millimeter, you know, it wouldn't have been the same, but it was just so it, it balanced and the humor hit on a certain level, but it was never too funny. And I mean, you, there was a sense of real pathos to this, to this character. So I'm wondering what was it, what was your process like working, working with Haley as an actress? Well, I, I'm so glad you feel that way. And, and, and yeah, I think Haley just knocks this one out of the park. I mean, it, 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 watching her in this role is mesmerizing. And I had the best seat in the house because I get to see it as it was happening. Um, Haley, you know, you know, Hunter wears multiple masks throughout the film. And, um, you know, uh, there's that first mask, which is Hunter kind of reflecting normalcy, reflecting what she wants, what her husband wants her to be. There's that second mask that's like her pain, her doubt. Is this where I belong? You know, is this who I am? And then there's that third mask that's her true self, her primal self emerging. And Haley Bennett can give you all of those emotional textures with just the twitch of her eye or the touch of her hair. Um, and, you know, she's the kind of performer who pours every iota of her being into her roles. Um, so I had seen her uh, in Girl on a Train. Um, our wonderful casting director, Alison Twardziak, recommended uh, Haley for the role. And I watched Girl on a Train and I was just, you know, in awe of the performance there. And I suspected that Haley might be interested in a role that was kind of bold and daring and uh uh, off the beaten path. Right. So I, I offered her the role, um, wrote her a letter and I figured I'd never hear from her. Um, because there are so many roles being offered, you know, it's hard to get uh, a great actor's uh, attention, uh, for a film, but miraculously, uh, she, uh, loved the script and agreed to meet with me. And right away there was this real, um, uh, artistic bond between us. And I think we, it was a real meeting of the minds. And I think we, uh, uh, knew right away we wanted to tell the story together. And Haley was also an executive producer on the film. Uh, and because of that, she was extremely generous with her time. And we got a lot of time before shooting to, you know, discuss the role and the intricacies of the part and, go, you know, go over every scene. So that was, uh, it was so generous of her. And um, when we arrived on set, you know, <clears throat> uh, it was, it was, it was, there's something magical about an actor summoning a role into being you know it's like otherworldly suddenly Haley just stopped being herself and became hunter you know yeah i remember she even arrived on set and she was like i'm gonna do a voice because that's not Haley's real voice and i was like oh great let's hear it and she did it and i was like this is amazing Whoa. so uh, you know uh, and that was a great innovation because if you if you pay attention, you'll see that Hunter's voice subtly changes throughout the course of the film. So that really allowed uh, Haley to chart Hunter's progress in a very uh, on an auditory way. Interesting. One little side note: Did you say that you wrote her a letter, as in like an actual handwritten letter? Yes. Uh, oh, wow. 
I, I actually, I think it might, it was digital. I wrote it on a, you know, it was like a, but still it was a physical letter that was printed document. out. Yeah. I believe in, in letter writing. I think it's, it's, um, you know, if you really want someone to be in a film or you really, you know, care about an actor's work, write them a letter. I think it, it means something or I, I think it, it helps. Those personal touches I think are huge because it takes two seconds to write an email, but to symbolically show that you care enough to do something tangible. I think that that it's, it's something huge there for sure. I, I, yes, I would encourage, you know, every filmmaker to, to write letters, um, to take the time to sit down and, and write something heartfelt to a potential collaborator who you really respect and to show them that respect. So how, when working with Haley on this character, how far down the pika rabbit hole did you guys go? I mean, how, what was the research process like? Was there ever any disturbing discoveries? I mean, what was that, that element like? Well, the film was inspired by my grandmother, who was a homemaker in the 1950s in an unhappy marriage who developed various rituals of control. Mm -hmm. uh, she was an obsessive hand washer who would go through four bars of soap a day and 12 bottles of rubbing alcohol a week. And I think she was looking for order in a life she felt increasingly powerless in. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather, at the behest of the doctors, um, put her into a mental institution where she received electroshock therapy, insulin shock therapy, and a non-consensual lobotomy where she lost the taste and smell, none of which cured her OCD, of course. And I always felt that there was something punitive about it, that she was being punished in a way for not living up to society's expectations of what they felt a wife or a mother should be and for being different. So I wanted to make a film about that, and I got my grandmother's case study from the institution, which was just a heartbreaking uh, uh, read. Um, wow. And you know, but as I was adapting the the, uh, the her story, I realized that hand washing is not very cinematic, uh, but mm -hmm. it, maybe it's becoming more cinematic because we're all obsessively doing it now. Um, but at the time, I, I felt like it would be hard to translate to the screen in a dynamic way, and I saw. A, um, an image, uh, it was a photograph online of all the contents of someone's stomach uh, uh, who, who had pica that had been surgically removed. And there was, all these artifacts were fanned out on the table like an archeological dig. Oh. And I was fascinated. I wanted to know what drew the patient to those objects. It almost seemed like a holy communion or something mystical, and I wanted to know more. So that's how it started. And then I reached out to the world's expert on pica, uh, Dr. Rachel Bryant Waugh, who became on board the, f the film as a consultant, and uh, I was really grateful to work with her. Um, so I did a lot of research about the film, um, and Haley and I discussed a lot of that research, and she did her own. And ultimately, um, you know, we w all that research uh, is in the film. Um, but like we discussed before, I also included research that I did on OCD and other uh, rituals of control and compulsions because I wanted it to feel as universal as possible. Well, um, yeah, the, it's, what occurred to me watching it before I you know, read the other interviews that you had done where you, you'd mentioned your grandmother was that this did seem to come from a very personal place. You know, it felt like it had a very personal touch that went beyond you know, the initial story, but, you know, definitely went deeper. I'm glad to hear that. Was there any other condition that you considered making this movie about? Because you'd said the hand washing wasn't cinematic and then Pika somehow showed up. Was there any other possible thing that you, that almost fit the bill, but didn't quite make sense? It's a really interesting question. Um, not really. No, I, I, my grandmother was also agoraphobic. 
Um, and there's a little bit of agoraphobia to the movie itself. It's a movie that's very uh, that's very much about someone who is isolated in containment and confinement. So that element worked its way in. But there was something about Pika that really drew drew me uh, drew me in. I, I'm also a collector of small objects and talismans, and so you know that idea of 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 um, the uh, the object that is imbued with a kind of significance uh, spoke to me. Where did you guys shoot this, by the way? So we shot up in uh, Poughkeepsie. Um, in uh, yeah, so that area right on the Hudson uh, was where we shot. So the Hudson River really became a character in the film. I didn't realize this, but the river changes like a mood ring; it changes color. Hmm. Um, so that was really uh, uh, interesting. And the house um, is an, is a real structure. Um, that we found, uh, location scout found. And the moment I walked into it, I was like, my God, this is a Hitchcock film. This is North by Northwest. Hmm. And there are actually these giant, uh, marbles. They look like they're sculptures outside of the house, these spherical sculptures. And I thought, my God, it's the marbles that a hunter consumes. This Whoa. Is um, and I was, I was, when I saw Parasite, which is such an incredible masterpiece, when I saw that film, I, I was so thrilled, um, to see another modern house. I was like, oh, we shot in a modern house and they shot in a modern house. And there's something about a modern house uh, like that uh, with all glass exteriors that you feel, you, set, you, you imagine would be holistic to be in, that you'd be integrated into nature. But when you're actually in it, you feel very vulnerable, you know, mm -hmm. especially at night because the house is illuminated like a lantern and you can sense the eyes of the forest on you. And there's something uh, about it that feels like Hunter's in a glass display case, you know, uh, that she's imprisoned by this invisible barrier. And that uh, felt very metaphorically uh, significant to me. Yeah, the house did really come across as a character in a way, you know, the glass box case. And it was a super modern house, but there was also something like oddly retro about it. Like that scene when you see all the guys hanging out by the pool, that kind of, I don't know, it felt like almost, there were moments where it felt like Mad Men era, but not necessarily the time period, but that kind of... Uh, that sensibility of like, all right, the guys are all over here and the women are here and the women are supposed to be inside and the guys are out having their cigars or whatever. It had a kind of, you know, vintage sensibility in terms of that's how people used to treat women, you know? Yeah, that was very intentional on in our on our design team's part. Um, Leanna Debrosia, an incredible costume designer, uh, you know, is is so skilled at conveying who people are based on you know the intricacies of what they wear. And Aaron McGill, our our, our production designer, uh, uh, worked on Mad Men as well. Oh well. Wow. Uh, yeah. So the whole interior of the house is all constructed by Aaron. Um, but uh, we wanted the whole movie to have a kind of a subtle retro aesthetic in the beginning to convey the idea that the old guard patriarchy and sexism, you know, from that era of the 50s is still lurking somewhere under the surface of our modern world. And as Hunter um, goes on her journey, the film's style becomes more and more realistic, both in the production design and also in the camera direction uh, and in the costumes to reflect um, Hunter's um, growing uh, um, power and and clarity. Cool. So, how did the movie come together? I mean, how did you go from idea to script to screen? <clears throat> 
Well, once I had the initial idea of my grandmother's story and the pica, um, I set about writing the first draft of the script. Um, for me, writing is somewhat akin to summoning a creature from the beyond. You know, you have to prepare your circle uh, drawn from chalk and, you know, light the candles. And it, it is a little bit of a of a mystical experience in a way. I kind of click into this space that painters refer to as the zone where like hours will go fly by and I'll look at the clock and be like, oh my God, it's 5 a.m. How did this happen? That is part of the initial period of writing a first draft. Then, you know, and, and so I wrote the first draft in like three weeks, uh, but then it takes years of rewriting. Uh, my father uh, always likes to say that writing is rewriting, and I really mm -hmm. agree with him on that. Um, and, you know, so I so I worked on the script for, for, for uh, quite some time, and then I asked my friend, my colleague, uh, who's also an amazing uh, filmmaker, Dagny Looper, I said, who are the best uh, producers in the in the business? Um, and she said, Molly Asher and Minette Louie, but you'll never get them. And so I was like, OK, well, I might as well try. And um, <clears throat> I'm, I sent the script to Molly Asher. Uh, she's made so many incredible movies like The Rider, Chloe Zhao's The Rider. Um, and she's lost control and songs my brothers taught me. And so Molly read the script and, and we really loved it. And we began working together. And then uh, Molly reached out to the amazing Minette Louie, who's such an incredible producer, who's done unbelievable films like the horror movie The Invitation, Land Ho, Buster's Malhart, um, and, uh, uh, you know, so many great films. So she brought on Minette and the three of us, you know, formed this, this, this wonderful collaboration, this wonderful bond and producers are, are really important, um, to getting a film, uh, made and, and over the finish line. And it's something that I feel like needs to be taught more in film schools, the sacred bond between directors and, and producers. Um, Molly and Minette gave me a lot of incredible notes and I you know, would work on the script and fine tune it. Um, and then eventually uh, we cast Haley and that was a huge thing, bringing on our lead. And we knew that was extremely important uh, to get someone that the audience could really, you know, uh, that, that would be, would bring Hunter to life effectively because she's in every single scene, you know? So once we had that, then it was really a matter of, of raising uh, the money. Um, and, and casting the rest of the, the film and getting the crew together and Molly and Minette fought with every iota of their, of, of their beings to make this movie made. I mean, to get this movie made. I mean, they really just were unstoppable, fearless, uh, champions of this project. We got into Sundance uh, Catalyst, which we were very grateful for, uh, where we raised some of the money there. But getting the, the, the rest of the financing together was a challenge um, because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people were interested, but first time director, uh, an unusual story um, just meant that we, you know, it was hard to pull the financing together. But Molly and Minette uh, were undaunted and fought uh, to the to the bitter end to get the movie made. And incredibly, we got uh, the financing from France. Uh, Charades and Logical, our wonderful investors, came through. And um, they they took a chance on our unusual film and believed in us and uh, and believed in the vision of the movie. And I was so grateful to them. And then we uh, we got the pulled our crew together and shot the film. That's amazing. <clears throat>
So for those aspiring filmmakers out there who either have a script or are working on a script, how were you a, any kind of tips for pitching producers? I mean, did you did you have an agent? I mean, obviously, once they read the script, the script spoke for itself, but it's difficult to get a producer, you know, first of all, take a meeting, not to not to mention re, read a script. But any any tips for reaching producers in those very beginning stages, particularly yeah. for your first narrative? Absolutely. Well, I'm a big believer in short films, making a short film that is your calling card, your signature movie. And out of NYU grad film, I made Knife Point, which was my thesis film that played in Sundance in 2009. And I, I think it's 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 something that is a powerful tool because a short film uh, can win awards at festivals and it can you know launch your uh, your vision. It gives producers who are looking at your script an idea of how you are going to dissect a scene, how you're going to plan out the emotional uh, impact of a movie, you know, what uh, interests you, how you work with actors. And it, it does it all in a perfect capsule that will allow them to connect with the project. Um, Molly uh, Asher um, saw my short um, actually uh, – I think before she'd read the script and really loved it and felt like she wanted to work with me just off of the short. So that I think shows you that, you know, and we used the short to kind of, you know, uh, get investors intrigued. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're, a, a, an aspiring filmmaker, make a great short. That is really useful. The other thing which I'll say is, um, <clears throat> you know, and they, again, they don't really teach you this in film school, but do the research about producers. Look at the movies that you love that were made uh, at, and won awards at film festivals mm -hmm. that uh, are first other first time filmmakers and see the producers who uh, produced those movies. Who are the producers who believed in that person's vision, who honed that, you know, that project and brought it across the finish line and then reach out to those people, you know, find, you know, write a letter to those people, try to get in touch with them, learn who the producers are um, and then try to connect with them based on what your aesthetic is, not just on, you know, what you're, you're, you know, uh, you've been recommended necessarily, but what are the, you know, the movies that you are inspired by and find out who's behind them. Then the other thing I would say is that people will want to work on your project if you show them how passionate you are about it. Um, if you're the kind, if you're, if you're a generous director and you make, you bring people into your world and you say, Hey, I want to work with you and you're open to notes and you're open to people's, you know, perspectives and you are able to learn from your collaborators. That is crucial. The directors who go in and say, I don't know. I've already, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm completely solid in, in my thinking. Auteurs. Yes, I really believe in the auteur theory, but film is also a collaborative medium. And you have to be able to surround yourself with incredibly talented people and to appreciate the work that they do. I think that is is crucial to making a great film. Um, so, yeah. So and, uh, you know, be be some someone who uh, who cares deeply about your project. And if you don't care deeply about your project, you shouldn't be making it anyway. You know, yeah. choose projects that you desperately want to see on the screen. People you haven't seen on the screen before, stories you haven't seen on the screen before, and champion those stories. And 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 people will want to uh, to work with you, hopefully. 
Yeah, it's interesting to hear that you are, I mean, obviously a big believer in in collaboration, but also a believer in auteur theory. And some might think that the two are mutually exclusive because, I mean, you're, the movie has, it feels like everything is very handpicked. You know, it feels like it's a very specific mm-hmm. universe and it definitely, it feels like it has your hand in everything. So how are you able to balance that level of giving, not necessarily autonomy, but allowing people to do their job while maintaining control over the you know the the world and the film that you're you're building how are you able to balance you know auteur theory while being a good collaborator i think that's the one of the primary jobs of being a director you know mm-hmm. i mean that and and knowing knowing the difference but and how to create and structure and foster that balance right uh, i mean it's 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 the same thing as any kind of um of any kind of big venture you know i think if someone's going to do great work and they're they're on your team. The way they're going to do great work is if you believe in them and you allow them to you know uh, to to strive and to do uh, what they do so well. The thing they the reason you hired them. Yeah. And at the same time, you also need to be the <clears throat> uh, you know the person who is molding and sculpting the vision as well. Um, and 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 keeping the project true to the soul of, of everything that you want the movie to be. Mm. Um, at the same time as, as, you know, breathing life into every, uh, scene and trying uh, the best you can, um, to foster powerful organic performances. You know, for me as a filmmaker, uh, you also have to be, you know, you're kind of like the tree, uh, the, the strong tree that can hold up, you know, that can, uh, you know, bear fruit and and leaves and be this strong, proud tree in the forest. But you also have to be the tree that that is supple enough to bend in the breeze, you know, so that it won't break. And that's interesting, the balance, you know, um, to see the opportunities, to see the the uh, necessity is often the mother of invention. As a mm-hmm. first time filmmaker working with, uh, you know, you're not working with five hundred million dollars. You need to see oh, how can I work this to my advantage, or you know, how can this uh, fact that our scene is rained out, uh, be turned into something exciting and interesting and compelling, like what happened to us on that scene in Swallow with the rainbow. That was all, you know, we discovered that. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's about, it's really a balance and being a director is about learning how to, um, empower the people you work with and to, um, um, inspire them to do the work that they're the most excited about while also staying true to your vision and championing the, uh, 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 the story that you want to see on the screen and cultivating and sculpting, uh, the intricacies of that tale. That's great. I love the tree analogy. I'm definitely gonna, definitely gonna hang on to that one. That's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm really curious about the what the response has been like for the film, both on a emotional level and on a visceral horror level. I'll tell you, watching it made my esophagus hurt. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually felt a physical sensation of, because you can't help but watch it and, and empathize. And I, I started to get physical sensations of foreign objects, like literally like right in my chest. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. Mm-hmm. But what's the, um, what has the response been from a kind of a visceral horror perspective? Perspective, but also from a emotional perspective, because it does have some horror elements, but it does also has some very, very emotional elements to it as well. I mean, the movie has a really clear heart. So what have, what have the two different kind of responses been? Well, thank you for saying it has a clear heart. I love that phrase. I'm going to start <laughs> using that. Um, yeah. You know, what I'm so proud of about the movie 
is that it really is kind of an emotional roller coaster. You know, it's a film that, that frightens people. It's also a film that makes you laugh. And it's also a film that makes you cry. And oftentimes uh, when the movie has ended in public screenings, I've been so moved by people coming up to me with tears in their eyes or wanting to tell me personal stories they've lived through that they felt were represented in the movie uh, in some form. Some of the, the Q&As have become quite emotional and, and healing and beautiful. Um, and I've been so gratified to that the movie has, has that effect, that people have seen it and some people have taken it into their personal cosmology, you know, and that's what I do with the movies I love. I, I don't just see them. I usher them into my, mm. you know, cathedral of, of, of personality. And I say, oh, you know, you, do you want to know who I am? Let's sit down and watch my favorite movies, you know, and I hope that swallows a movie like that, that is personal enough and, and poignant enough that it connects uh, for people while at the same time being an unusual film and a film that's a little dangerous and, you know, unsettling because sometimes you got to kind of shock people out of complacency a little bit. You know, we get so numb. A lot of the times we, we were sitting around, you know, kind of just letting the world wash over us. And sometimes a great film can have, uh, you know, a, a cathartic reaction where you wake up a little and you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, there's some injustice in the world that I want to try to work against or there's something I've been feeling that I haven't fully articulated yet or there's some, you know, personal journey that I want to sort of um, go on. You know, that can be the effect of films and Swallow seems to be a film that has that effect. A lot of people have been making fan art for the movie uh, potent, just drawing their own posters and wow. really taking it into their own world. And I have been so uh, honored and gratified to see that. That's awesome. So when it comes to directing and filmmaking, there's a lot of books out there, a lot of which are, you know, not the best because a lot of, there's a lot that are written by people who haven't actually done it, but it's a market that's, you know, flooded with a, not a, a lot of subpar products. But that being said, were there any resources or books that were particularly helpful for you as a filmmaker, either from a creative perspective or a business mm -hmm. perspective? That's a good question. Um, yeah, especially when I was in film school, I remember there was a few books that I found deeply inspiring. Um, one of which was Notes for the Cinematographer by Robert Bresson, that little book, you know, that uh, I think you can still order it online, carried around in my back pocket. And it was like these little haikus about making a movie that mm. were philosophically fascinating. You know, he would say things like the, the movie is born in your mind. It dies on the page. It's reborn on the, in the shoot. It, you know, it, it, he had all these great kind of, uh, metaphorical analogies. Um, and then uh, I remember uh, Tarkovsky's book, Sculpting in Time, was one that really resonated with me. Um, there's a lot of fascinating um, books out there to read on film and filmmaking. Um, but at the same time, you know, also I, I derived great solace from watching films. You know, there was a period where I would go through, I would watch five films a day when I was in film school. And I had to cut that back so I could get some sleep and to make some movies of my own. But just going to the, uh, you know, to the library even and watching, you know, film after film, I discovered, you know, Chantal Ackerman. You know, I discovered films that deeply inspired me like uh, City of God or, you know, Psycho. I found films that changed my life, you know, uh, forever. Um, and 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 then I had uh, a rich palette to draw inspiration from. I would say that keeping up a steady diet of 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 great movies, interesting movies, or even films that aren't so great, so that you can stutter, you can study, uh, you know, narrative structure is really important. <clears throat> um, and I think that's 
you know, there are there are a lot of there are resources out a lot more online that people can go to to watch great films. Um, and I, I, I highly encourage that. Uh, you're only going to improve your filmmaking the more movies you watch. Great. Great. Well, on that note, Carlo, this is a real pleasure. Thank you. And uh, huge congratulations on Swallow. What is next for you? So right now I'm working on um, a feminist supernatural horror movie amongst other projects. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll have a, a new movie soon to share with uh, you and your audience. Uh, and I hope you'll you'll have me back on to talk about it then. Great. I hope everybody is staying safe and staying inside and washing their hands and supporting um, all of the essential workers and ho- and hospital workers who are risking their lives uh, every day. And um, I hope we, we, we all get through this. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think films are important at this time. I really think movies can bring us together, increase empathy, fight prejudice and, you know, uh, uh, increase uh, unity, which we which. Uh, and and give us the solace to to make it through trying times like this. Yeah, exactly. It's it's movies are definitely more important than ever, and I feel like a lot of movies are going to be written now because people now have these swathes of time. Yes. So now's the time, filmmakers out there, get those scripts done. That's right. <laughs> in 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 uh, the Decameron, they're all hiding from the plague, uh, telling stories. Cool. Yeah. Well, Carlo, thanks again. Any parting wisdom for the filmmakers out there? Parting wisdom. Yes. I would say that one of the most important uh, totem animals for me as a filmmaker um, is uh, the wolf, because the wolf is known for its endurance. And I think as a filmmaker, you really need to have endurance. You have to keep the hearth fires burning of your creativity, your imagination, your inspiration, because it really is a long run to get a movie made. And a lot of times it seems like an impossible dream, but I am here to tell you that it is possible. And if you have the endurance and you believe in what you're doing and you stick with it, no matter what, you will find the amazing people out there who will want to tell your story with you and it's worth it. And it is possible. So keep dreaming your dreams and keep writing and keep working because if you stick with it, anything is possible. Great. Perfect words to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. A lot of big takeaways here. Here, as always, are some key lessons from this conversation with Carlo Mirabella Davis. Number one, be thorough. There's a serious level of craftsmanship in Swallow, as every scene, choice, and moment feels meaningful. It's clear from the get-go that every detail of the movie has been thoroughly thought through and presented with purpose. The movie has multiple layers, all of which are loaded with subtext, but the film isn't even slightly weighed down. In fact, the movie moves with this light smoothness, all while retaining its depth. It's a pretty masterful balance, which seems to have been achieved by Carlo and his team's attention to detail. So the takeaway here here is to really do your homework and work with your team to think through every conceivable detail that you can. Everything from subtle costume details to production design and camera direction are all driven by the story. This level of purposeful attention to detail is something you don't hear enough directors talking about. A lot of directors want great costumes and gorgeous shots, but overlook the power of aligning these key creative choices in their movies with purpose. Carlo clearly does this to a huge degree, and it gives the movie a very profound depth that you can just feel. Number two, 
Consider approaching horror as an ingredient as opposed to the main genre of your movie. First of all, I am a quintessential gore hound who just watched Bloodsucking Freaks for the umpteenth time with Joe Bob Briggs, so I love pure horror just as much as the next guy. But it is worth noting that horror can work exceptionally well as a drama delivery system. If you mix a horror element with a deeply rooted drama along with believable characters and relatable emotions, you can have some real magic on your hands. This was the case with Swallow, which has a major horror element, but is largely a drama. The horror element makes the drama work better, and the drama makes the horror element work better. The two go hand in hand when presented together, because good drama creates realism, which makes the horror element more believable, more terrifying, and more effective. The other thing worth mentioning regarding this point is that some of the best horror movies were directed by non-horror directors. Friedkin with The Exorcist, Kubrick with The Shining, Jonathan Demme with Silence of the Lambs, James Cameron with Aliens, Spielberg with Jaws, the list goes on. As much as we, and myself included, love a good gore fest, directors who really understand drama can make some killer horror movies. Number three, find the dark humor. Similar to how drama can make horror work better, humor can make horror more bearable. As Carlos said, dark humor makes the medicine go down. Humor strategically used can help an otherwise visceral and difficult to watch movie be more bearable. This was the case in Swallow, which had a few substantial laughs here and there, which really gave the movie and actually a disturbing levity to it that also helped the horror element work better and made the more disturbing scenes more bearable. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Horror Show.